Hi, welcome to Steve Race True Crime Interviews. Delighted to welcome Ricky Gleason to the platform today. How are you, Ricky? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? You yeah, all right? Yeah, great, mate. And um, always good to get uh, new faces on and, and different people to uh, to tell their story. And as always, at the start of the podcast, um, I go back to the, the very beginning. And um, Newcastle is your home, but you've got a little bit of a southern accent, which I think people will pick up on during the podcast. So I, tell us... I, tell, you see any castles you but are you from Slough originally? I am from Slough originally, yeah, and it's not a little bit of an accent either, is it? It's quite a strong accent. I'm from yeah. well, I'm from I'm from Slough originally. Um and then when I was twelve I moved overnight to South Shields. And um, you know, if you'd caught me at sixteen, seventeen, I had a different accent than this, but over the years I've lost it. But yeah, um Newcastle I'm from South Shields, I lived in South Tyneside. For a long time and then in my late teens i moved up to newcastle and uh i don't live there at the moment but newcastle is where our class is home my wife's a geordie from the west end she's from fenham all my all my friends are from up there um and yeah when i, when I say that i'm going home it's never to slough <laughs> west end's the best end by the way and well, uh, south shields is where i was born i'm a sound oh, dancer it? i didn't know that i didn't know that yeah, yeah not, not a geordie i'm a sand dancer so oh, okay. and, I, and i'm proud of it i've got to be honest yeah. okay so tell us a little bit about your, your childhood mate uh, was it a happy childhood uh no, no i wouldn't say so i wouldn't say in hindsight looking back no um so i moved to south shields overnight from a woman's refuge in london because i've been doing sort of the rounds with my mother there um, she was always in abusive relationships. I'd come out of care kind of thing. Uh, and yeah, we, we, I just got woken up one night and told that the only, the only place that had a bed in the country was South Shield. So that was where we moved to overnight. And obviously Cockney accent, you know, turned up hundreds of miles away from where I'd always been. And uh, my, yeah, just, I, I very quickly turned into a bit of a naughty lad at school for attention or whatever. And then, Slowly but surely, just deteriorated into juvenile delinquent. Tell us about tell us about school. Then, I mean, you say you you know, you know school wasn't great for you. I mean, did you struggle at school, or were you were you intelligent but were just messing around? What what, what was uh, yeah, going yeah, on at school? Yeah, yeah, I, I was a messer arounder. Um, if you're from Shields, you know you'll know the schools. I went to Mortimer Comprehensive, um, and I, I'm one of them. I was one of those students that you know every report said if he just knuckled down. He do very well um, because I'm not I'm not unintelligent at all. I, I'm very good at English as well. You know, I seem to always had an ability uh, being able to write and things like that. But I just yeah, I started messing around and from there just deteriorated. And then you know, I was getting suspended all the time. And I didn't actually do that much of senior school. I think I worked out I probably did about a year and a half, two years tops. And then I was um, permanently excluded by fourteen. Do you remember? Did you ever hear of Simon Side Lodge? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, so I used to go to Simonside Lodge a couple of days a week to try and sort of sort my behavioural problems out. And I've always said that I think if they'd sent me there full time, I would have been all right. But they didn't. They pulled me back out and tried to sort of keep me going in mainstream school. And I'm a firm believer that mainstream school doesn't 
you know, it works for most people, but it doesn't work for everybody. And I was one of those, one of those people. No, it, it doesn't work, work for everybody. I mean, like, you know, it's a similarity again that we've got, you know, I mean, I was born in South Sheens. I never lived there. I always lived in Gateshead, but right. again, with school, um, you know, the class clown, I, I like to entertain people, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and, 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 and that was at the detriment of my own education, you know, d doing daft things, making people laugh in class, but, you know, without your, your, your mind on the bigger picture, which was, you know, you need to knuckle down and get these exams passed, otherwise you, you're going to leave school with nothing. Um, but yeah, I mean, with your, with your particular story, when you moved here, I mean, did you have any brothers and sisters or were you an only child? No, so I'm an only child and I moved up there. I've got no family in the area. Um, I have now, funnily enough, it, it turned out that my, my uncle left years later left the army and ended up in Washington. So now I'm moving back. I've actually got some cousins. But growing up, no, it was me. It was my mother. And that was it. And, you know, other than that, it was just my friends sort of became my family kind of thing. Um, my relationship, um, you know, I don't know if you know the ins and outs of it my relationship with my mother wasn't good um no i don't talk, i mean uh, are you okay to talk about that yeah yeah i'll talk about it, me <laughs> um yeah you know, well i do my own podcast and we talk about it on there and stuff but my, my mother was um you know she was really damaged herself really sort of she couldn't look after herself so it was quite hard to look after me and as the years went on and my behavior got worse it was even harder to look after me she was an alcoholic um she was always in abusive relationship she she always picked the wrong man kind of thing so and then you know it, yeah it just sort of deteriorated she, i was thrown out the house by 15 and by which point i was feral anyway so i say i was thrown out the house i wasn't really there much anyway um and this is You'll know yourself. This is this is lots of people, lots of young people from the northeast live like this, you know, and they're, they're living at their mates' houses and stuff, and you know they're just constantly in trouble. I think I've said before it was nothing serious. You look at my criminal record; it's not a serious charge on it. It's nothing that you'd think, oh, yeah, what a bad person. It's all very petty stuff, but it was just relentless, non-stop, always in trouble. What was the straw that broke the camel's back at school? Why why were you excluded from school? Uh, I cut a teacher's hair. I cut my teacher's hair. And you know what? It's that class clown thing, though, because it was the one class that um, I was in with my best friend, who I'm still best friends with now. And he wasn't like me. And his family, you know, are completely the opposite of my family. And he was a good student and everything. But we were just in this one class together, geography. Um, I was a class clown. He was my best mate. We were sat next to each other. I used to act up the whole time. He was getting told off for something. And I thought that it would be very funny to lean across we were using scissors at the time and cut the teacher's fringe and um that was it that was my time of school done and then after that they sent me to an hour a day school um shoot to read do you know shoot to read yeah yeah i've heard of it yeah excuse me they sent me to an hour a day school to um which ticks the boxes for your minimum education um by law it was five hours a week at that time you have to do five hours of senior education a week so that's why i went there but when i got there they asked me to color things in and i was like no i think i went two or three times and just said no that's not for me and then i never went back and i, I you know there's lots of people like me when i was younger i fell through the cracks nobody nobody came to chase me up you know it was sort of easier to just leave me be so um by i would say by 14 and a half i just stopped going to school completely that was it that was it i was done i never went back to school at all never done any education at all did you do anything sport related i mean sometimes you hear we have people on the podcast who say well i didn't stick in at this but you know i actually enjoyed doing sport i was there no. for the football i was there for the rugby um, at school, no, I can honestly, by the end, I hated school. Uh, you know, there's no two ways to doubt. And this is why I say that school isn't for everyone. I hated it. Every day was a battle for me going to school. The moment I walked in, I was battling with the teachers. Um, yeah, and I, maybe I caused a lot of that by 
for myself through my behavior. But at the same time, it, it just became a ridiculous cycle of I was only going into school to get into trouble. There was no, I, you know, it wasn't I wasn't learning anything. I think what I do remember is there was two teachers there both maths teachers and I did well in maths and they were the only two teachers that I can look back at and say they they got me they got that there was something wrong and that I needed teaching differently from most other pupils and one of them a little story one of them used to see me start messing about and he would put a 20 pence piece down which in a Early nineties was a lot of money, isn't it? That gets quite a lot on my lunch break. <laughs> yeah. Get an ice cup. Get, 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 get an ice cup and a cigarette for that on your lunch break. <laughs> so, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, and a match. So, yeah, and a match. So yeah, he used to he, he played golf and he used to put a 20 pence piece down and uh get his putter out, put me in the back of the room and get me to try and hit this 20 pence piece for five minutes or so. And then he would tell me to sit back down and do my work. It's only now that I look back that I realized what he was doing. He could see that I was starting to mess about. He broke my concentration. I sat back down. I topped the exam straight away and then got moved up a set. And I remember as I got moved up a set, he asked me to stay in the set that I was in because he didn't want me to go up and not be taught by him. But he said it was up to me. And I was like, well, I've deserved, you know, I've earned it. So they moved me up to the top set. And within six months, they kicked me straight out of that class through my behavior because there wasn't that person. And another one was just, you know, he was a legend of the school. He was an old guy called Mr. Mitchison. Um, he used to wear the school uniform because he thought it was unfair that, you know, we had to and they didn't. He was one of those type of characters. And he would start fighting me. If he saw me messing about, he would come over and start like grabbing my neck and stuff. And he, he knew all these chokeholds and stuff. But again, it was just breaking, our, breaking my concentration. Do you know what I mean? And you know, taking my mind off everything and then tell me to work again. And then I would work again. And I did well in maths and English, you know, respective teachers. So, but other than that, I detested school. Were you a good mixer? Did you get, did you get on with people? Did you make friends easily yeah, at that age? Yeah, 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 I would say so. Yeah, looking back, I was a bit of, um, I, I was always attracted to the, uh, the bad crowd, you know. When they say, did you fall in with the wrong crowd? I actively sought out the wrong crowd. Um, but at the same time, I look back now and I've still got lots of friends on my Facebook that knew me in school that weren't. But and they, they all say you were a nice kid. There was nothing. You know, I was sort of comedian, social comedian. Always have been, still am. So, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you know, being from a, another area, although, you know, you were there from, from birth, I guess you, you were brought up in South Shields. I mean, was, was there any time that you felt, you know, bullied or was there anything like that happening at school for you? I, I was known as Cockney Ricky. Everybody knew where I was coming from. I was never given grief because of the fact that I wasn't from South Shields. It was, you know, it was accepted. Shields was my home. Um, as for bullying, I'm always sort of, I don't know if it was a different world back then. I can't sit here and say that I was bullied. Um, uh, I can't sit here and say that I wasn't bullied by certain people. At the same time, I can't say that I didn't bully people. Do you know what I mean? It was just... It was sort of, I was never badly bullied. I don't feel like I was bullied, but at the same time, some people gave me shit. I gave other people shit. That was the way of the world back then, wasn't it? Do you know what I mean? It was sort of working yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, back, back in the day when we were at school as well, I mean, you got a thing called options. I mean, did, was that a little bit of a wake-up call? It was for me because I remember the headmaster coming into school and uh, coming into the class and asking everybody what their options were going to be and what do you want to do for your exams and, and what are you looking to do when you leave school? And I wanted to be an actor. Um, mm. And I, I was actively pursuing that from the age of seven. I yeah. went into a, a theatre school on a Saturday, uh, Saturday morning from 11, in, uh, you know, from 11 years of age. And I carried that through until till 18. So my mindset as being the class clown was, I don't need to study because I'm going to be an actor. And the headmaster hated that. He absolutely hated it. And he went, you'll never be an actor 
you know, I, I got hold over the desk. I got, you know, yelled by the throat, um, yeah. you know, on numerous occasions. Back in the good old days when teachers could discipline a kid. Uh, and, and really... Um, I, I'm glad I proved him wrong. But from from your perspective, did, did you have a, did you have a career path that you were looking at at that time? Uh, do you know what? For a long time, everyone thought that I was going to go into acting. It was easily the the strongest subject. I say subject. It was what I was good at in school. Um, you know, yeah. I, I, I think a lot of people, myself included, for a long time, thought that I was going to go off into drama college. But I, I I think I don't think I made it to options. And by 14, I'd started taking drugs, and that became. A very instant problem and it was clear that I was sort of going nowhere and by 15 I was homeless um well just before 16 so you know careers just disappeared out the window and I, I lost uh, a lot of years to homelessness and drug addiction so okay well let's 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 look at that I mean mm. you know my you know turning around about the 13 14 year old I was going to the school disco and we would go meet at the municipal car park uh, we you know somebody would have nicked some vodka from their dad's uh, drinking cabinet somebody would have nicked some wine somebody would have nicked the can and um we would all have a all the lads would meet up would all share share our respective drinks some of us would be sick some of us would whitey and um you know somebody would be bringing the cigarettes and you know would all be like men at 13 and 14 then go to the local disco and you know you'd end up either scoring with the local girl or, or having a fight um yeah. you know but from you you I, I never had drugs at that age well you so were getting I, it you were getting into drugs what kind of drugs were you messing around with i start I, yeah so we used to do all of that stuff as well but i started off also as well as you know drinking in marine park you know smoking a bit of reefer um i also used to uh, i fell into sort of solvents and i used to sniff light fluid and butane gas that was the first drugs that i used when i was 13 and lsd i, I took a lot of lsd growing up wow well. so yeah 13 as well so i look back now and realize that they're hard drugs you know lsd is a long long lasting very hard psychedelic um and i took quite a bit of that growing up and also with the light fluid and the gas uh you know sort of looking back at my behavior now i realized that i used to do i used to do that on my own quite a lot um Glue bags as well, we into that? No, no, and it's one of these things, right, where I would tell myself, well, you know, that, I'm not a glue sniffer, so that's all right. You're just, <laughs> you're just doing lighter fluid and gas. Do you know what I mean? Now I look back, I think it's all the same. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, yeah, it, wasn't, it didn't progress the glue bags, but, you know, it started off with solvents, then uh, moved into sort of amphetamines, and you get your party drugs, ecstasy. And then when I was homeless um i ended up in bristol where i started smoking heroin and i, I smoked heroin for a couple of years so to so go back i mean at that age school age i, I yeah. mean was it was it easy to get those kind of drugs at that time because again my social circle um you know other than school i went to school 10 miles away my my parents took us out of state education put me into private education so i wasn't mixing at school with the locals um however i was i was playing out in the street or playing football on the field with locals who were easily into it. I remember a guy who was heavily into glue, um, yeah. and then he did exactly what you did. He, he moved through the, he, yeah, he moved, moved up the, the, drugs, the, yeah. the, the drug ladder, if you like. And then um, he was the one who was on magic mushrooms. He was the one who was on LSD. He was the yeah. one who was on this and that. And he progressed to heroin. Um, yeah. And and yeah, I mean, for me, it wasn't something that I would have said was easily obtainable. Certainly, was nobody hanging around saying, "Do you want to try this?" You had to actively go and chase it. So, were people coming to you, or were you looking for it, looking for the next high? Do you know what? You just said two things there that stood out. You said you were playing out, right? So I never played out. I just hung around. Right. You know I, mean? I, I wasn't playing out. I was just out from the moment 
you know, from the moment I could be out my house until late at night, I was out. I never went home. You know, I, 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 it's a weird one because I lived up in Simonside, but I hung around down in South Shields Town Centre. So there was no, you know, I didn't go home for my dinner or anything like that. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel welcome at home kind of thing. For me, the house was somewhere that I slept and that was about it. So there's that. I, I never played out. I was hanging around. Um, and your guy that was progressing through the drugs was probably hanging around. Do you know what I mean? And there's, there's a difference. And I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you how I got introduced to it. But drugs were easy to find. You know, we knew where to get them from. Uh, light fluid and gas you just bought from a shop. And that, that was that was probably... The worst part about it, they're just sort of easily obtainable legal substances that you happen to be able to get high off. So, you know, that you don't need to go and see a drug dealer to get yourself a can of Zippo lighter fluid. The experiences on LSD must have been mind bending. I mean, you know, you can have bad trips as well. I mean, did you have bad trips? Yeah, I, had a lot of, I had a lot of bad trips and me and my friends sort of talk about it now. I don't know why I took it so much because I was always having bad trips. And, you know, a lot a lot of my drug use doesn't make sense. A lot of it doesn't make sense at all. But yeah, yeah, I took a lot of LSD and sort of threw up my teens and then I knocked that on the head of my late teens um, and took a lot of ecstasy and sort of it, so in my mid twenties, I calmed down, but then I replaced it with alcohol. So, you know, uh, yeah, and I, I'm t uh, 11 months sober today from alcohol and out of, yeah, out of all of them, you know, it's been a constant stream of problems, substance problems out of all of them. Alcohol is the one that absolutely without shadow of a doubt brought me to my knees. So you've touched on it. Your relationship with your mom wasn't good. I mean, it, it, during that time where you were getting addicted and she's, she's an alcoholic, so she has her own battle. But at the time, you, you know, was she not picking up on the fact that you were out more and you were, you were taking these drugs? Was there no, was there no parental concern then? Yeah. Yeah. There was, she was always concerned. So I, I just think you obviously don't know this, but uh, my mum took her own life when I was 25. She was 42 uh, as a really bad alcoholic. And, you know, I'm always really honest about my mum's faults, but I always like to sort of, clear up my mum my mum loved yeah. me my mum adored me she she did her best which wasn't very good um and, and she did care and she knew that I was falling into these uh issues and it broke her heart but you know there wasn't really a lot she could do by then I'd sort of we we'd got to a stage in our relationship where I wasn't parentable because she hadn't parented me if that makes sense do you know what I mean it, there was so much damage done through sort of not through her not being able to look after herself which meant that she couldn't look after me, which meant by the time I was 15, I did what I wanted and I didn't really care whether it upset her or not. So, Yeah, well, God bless your mother. I hope she should rest in peace, you know, from, from my perspective. The, um, the, the the young offending stuff then, let's move on to that. Yeah. From 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 your perspective, was this um, was this mischief? Was this getting in with the wrong crowd? Or was this to, was this to fund your habits? It's just a bit of everything, to be honest. I was just, um, I was a serial young offender, you know, which I, there's, there's a statistic, isn't they? That, you know, serial young offenders are a statistic. I was a serial young offender, the type that you read about constantly in trouble on paper, bad person, 42 convictions by the time I was 21, you know, got arrested over 100 times, knew the police, they knew me. One of them, though, I, they didn't think that I was a bad person. There was no sort of you know, when they arrested me, everyone was polite to each other. I was never, you know, they wouldn't have me down as one of the horrible people kind of thing that they were used to dealing with. But I was just, I just couldn't stay out of trouble, Steve. I just, you know, for all sorts of thieving, fighting, um, you know, criminal damage, no, nothing ever serious. I mean, I know that's serious to a lot of people, but in the eyes of the law, nothing mega, you know, I wasn't some career criminal. And I say fighting, I wasn't hurting anybody. I was seven and a half stone. Could have punched anybody for hours and I wouldn't have hurt them. Do you know what I mean? So, 
yeah, it was just I, I just constantly got into trouble. Um, it was just part of my life, and I had been since I was like fourteen. I started getting arrested, and then towards the end, seventy. A lot of it's to do with homelessness because when you're homeless, eventually there are no consequences to being caught by the police. It, can you matter. remember your first? Can you remember your first crime out of it? Uh, you know, the first thing that you were actually charged with, and you went to court for pushing a wall down, pushing a wall down in South Shields. It, well, I wasn't there. Uh, it, it's weird. I only just realised that I got I got arrested for that. Spent hours in a police cell, and I think I got a, a, a charge, criminal criminal damage charge or something, a caution or something. Um, but I wasn't even there. Do you know what I mean? It, it didn't matter. I still ended up getting charged for it. So my first, yeah, my first charge. I wasn't there. I didn't do it. <laughs> um, you know, little things, you know, the, the slide, South Shields Fair slide got burnt down. Again, I wasn't there. I got arrested for it. I spent, like, I think I spent like 20 hours in the cells. Uh, you know, I, I got released eventually, but I'm like, I, I wasn't even there. And yeah, from there, um, I can't, to be honest, I looked back at my criminal record because uh, I had to get it because I'm in the forces now and I had to get it to sort of show them to let me in. And it's a lot of stuff that I just don't remember. And I'm, it's quite embarrassing reading it. Because, like I said, they're so petty. It's shoplifting, you know, criminal damage, bike theft. Um, and I, in my later teens, I started burgling shops. And that's what I went to Young Offenders for, because mm. I was sort of progressing and getting to the point where it was becoming how I made money. You know what I mean? So what was your view on the police? Um, yeah, it's a weird one. I wouldn't. Yeah, I, at the time, I would have said that oh, I hate the police. I don't hate the police. Um, I've met some, I, even during those times, I've met some very nice police officers. I met some wankers, you know, I met, I, like in all forms of life. Um, yeah. Except they've got, you know, authority behind them. And I've met some absolute, you know, wankers, bullies that can only behave the way they behave because they're in that uniform, you know. And I took a few kick-ins off the police that weren't warranted. Um, but, you know, there's been a few that I've met along the way that were nice people. And, you know, I... I I remember, I remember one in particular, my, my wife and I, my, my, she was my girlfriend at the time, we were homeless together. And um, I broke into the university halls and stayed in an empty room. And we'd sort of been found. And the, the guy that was sort of in charge of it had rung the police and the police turned up and he was asking us about our lives. And he found out we were homeless and he found out that my wife was from an Asian background, was supposed to have an arranged marriage, run away to be with me, et cetera, et cetera. And you could tell that he really felt for us. And then his colleague came out and said, no, I've got to arrest him. And this guy just point blank refused to arrest us and went back in. And, you know, this copper was arguing with the guy that wanted us arrested, just saying, I'm not arresting them. Do you know what I mean? You need to find out. And, you know, things like that. There's there's sound people in all walks of life in there. And as yeah. I've got older, as I've got older, we need the police. We need the police need to be supported a lot more, um, so that they can go and do the the jobs that the likes of you and I want them to do, rather than some of the stuff that they have to do. If take from that what you will. Yeah, tell us how you ended up on the streets, Ricky. I got thrown out. <laughs> Fifteen years old, yeah, that was it. I got thrown out of the house, told don't come back here anymore, and then from there, um, from there I was staying at my mates' houses, and eventually uh, you can only stay at your mates' houses for so long. Eventually you run out of options. And you end up sleeping outside and then, you know, that's it. You're on that spiral of homelessness that once you're in it, it's incredibly hard to get out of. And that out of everything, that is probably what defines me the most as a human being. The fact that I was homeless for so long. I mean, that first night on the street, 
Um, yeah. I, I've never been through that, and I, you know, I would like to think that I would never happen. But you can never say never. You never know what's going to happen in your life, what dramatic turn a life can take. That's the that is the beauty of life, and in a lot of ways, and we all have different experiences. I believe we're all we've all got a path to walk on. Um, but yeah, that that first night for you, what you know, what was it like? Were you in a were you in a were you in a comp were you a compass mendus? I mean Yeah, you know. yeah. I, I um I slept in Chubby Brown's scrapyard in Westo. I remember it. That was the first time I ever slept outside because I had nowhere to sleep and I had to go and I sort of climbed the walls. Scrapyard's gone now. But people from South Shields, sort of Westo area in the early nineties will probably remember Chubby Brown's Chub, Chubby Brown's scrapyard. It was um it was sort of in amongst all the back lanes, a big square surrounded by back lanes, you know, your northeastern back lanes and stuff. And yeah, we 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 used to go and uh, smoke weed there, so that's how I knew of it. And then I went and sort of climbed into a compartment and uh, sort of re realized I was sleeping outside. I've got to sleep outside. It's only now that I look back, I think, Fuck, hell, I was so young, um, you know, I, was, uh, I, I wasn't even 16 at the time. Um, you know, I was about seven and a half stone at that point in my life. So I was just this tiny little skinny thing climbing into this little um, sort of shed style thing and sleeping there from that. And I remember being cold, I remember being cold. And then, yeah, from there, you, you know, it descended and by you, I'd say my sort of 16, 17, you know, I was a real down and out. Like there's, there's no getting away from it. I was a real, real down and out. I mean, you know, tell us about the pitfalls of that. I mean, you know, we see dramatizations you know where you know homelessness is portrayed is it realistic some of this that, that, that the show i mean i i can't imagine that it is but i mean there is i guess a homeless community and within the area who yeah. you know who who will have their own chain of command maybe there will yeah. be good people there will be bad people tell us a little bit about it it's, it's exactly that you know you meet yeah yeah it's it is a community and I still see them, you know, I see them in every town that I go to, you see them hanging around and they all know each other. And it's a cycle. That's the problem is that homelessness becomes a cycle. And the longer you're in it, the harder it is to get out of um, because it, it becomes like anything. It just becomes your way of life. And, you know, you, you live in hour to hour a lot of the time, you know, you're not living, you're not even living day to day. You live in hour to hour. You're, you're working out where you're going to be in an hour's time. You're constantly problem solving. I've seen some stuff about it. I do some reading up on it um, about why it's so hard to break out of that cycle and why so many people fail a few times before they finally sort of crack it. Uh, and, you know, there's so many problems that you need to solve and so much that you're thinking about that when you suddenly get given a flat, for instance, this happened to me, you get given a flat, you get given the keys to the flat. There you go. You're not homeless anymore. And then you're in a flat with nothing to do and you don't know you don't know how to live. Do you know what I mean? And your community's disappeared from you all of a sudden. Do you know what I mean? Because your community lives outside and you see each other on the streets. Um, and you haven't got a problem to solve. And you, it's just, you've got to pay bills, which was too much for me. You know, the whole idea of, all right, now what do I do paying bills? And I ended up just in a flat with a light bulb and a mattress. And eventually you just you sack it off. And then people are like, oh, you know, he's made himself homeless, which technically you have. But it's a lot deeper than that. Um, and like you said, with the whole community, you know, it, it becomes... It becomes who you know and what you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are some bad people. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Everybody is struggling to survive down there. That is as poor as you get. And with poverty, people get desperate. So, you know, there is a lot of sort of robbing each other going on and a lot of bullying going on and, you know, vulnerable people getting joeyed, I think, is a term that you might have heard, you know, and sort of 
yeah, just getting used for their gyro gyros back in the day. I think it goes to Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, it used to be that, you know, gyros. You, people knew when each other's gyro day was, which amongst your friends, you know, that's fine, but you'd have to watch out. Oh, so-and-so knows it's my gyro day. I've got to stay away from him. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Other, or whereas other people, you'd be like, oh, it's, you know, so-and-so's gyro day. I'll go see them, you know, and you do, you do, you help each other. But yeah, at the same time, like it's a doggy dog world down there because people are desperate. It might be a daft question, but did you have a routine? Because I, I can imagine, I've often wondered about cool, like winter, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, I would imagine that, you know, it, it's different in the winter to the summer. But did, did you have a routine? Was there a specific time and place that you went to somewhere to get washed and then you went to try and get a meal somewhere? Did, yeah, was, was yeah. That... So, you know, I used to use the soup kitchens and the Cyrenians up on Westgate Road. Um, but I've been homeless all over the country. But when I was up in the northeast, it was the Cyrenians up on Westgate Road. Uh, there's a day centre over um, next to Biker Bridge. The, just just before Tanner's, if you know Tanner's, across the road from Tanner's yeah. is a day centre. Uh, you know, and you used to sort of walk over there for a couple of hours, go up to Cyrenians where you could use the showers, do your washing and get something to eat there. And yeah, little things like back in the day, go sit in a library for a bit. Um, go uh, way back in the day, you used to have all the headphones in HMV with all the new releases. Go and spend an hour listening to music in there um, and just try and kill time, really. That's a lot of what you're doing. Kill time until you can find sort of someone whose floor you can crash on for the night time. Um, yeah. Was, was there any, were there any like really scary moments for you in, in that period of your life? Oh, things scary. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I can imagine. I can yeah, imagine, yeah. but I would imagine you were toughened up as well. And sometimes the substance abuse takes that pain away. We see, we've seen recently in Newcastle prior to, prior to COVID, and the amount of people that we saw on Spice and I saw yeah. on Spice mm. in the Newcastle City Centre was horrific. And a lot of these people were homeless um, or certainly addicts who have maybe a communal home where they all share together and yeah. all use together, but were out on the street, completely out of their skull on Spice. And it's it's not nice to see. But, you know, I mean, f f from your perspective, was just, just you know, was there anything where you feared for your life or you had a s situation that you found that, you know, you'd... you'd you couldn't really cope with um not really not not feared for my life so i've got a friend so when i slept sorry excuse me um when i slept outside you know i probably only spent about eight out of seven eight years i probably only spent excuse me about a year and a half of that sleeping outside but because because i was a bit of a thief i mean you know i'm not glorifying it because i used to sort of burgle shops and things like that um, yeah I would always find somewhere to break into and sleep inside of somewhere away from everybody. Whereas I've got a friend of mine, he did the first podcast that, you know, with the podcast that I do from the outside looking in where we talk about all these social exclusion issues. He, he was a rough sleeper. He slept outside as you see in a shop doorway kind of thing. He's got horror stories. He's woke up, you know, people setting his blankets on fire. Uh, he's woke up to people pissing on him. Um, you know, and the fear isn't from the other homeless people. It's from, drunk people that look down on you and you know think that you know you've done something wrong to be there it's you know you don't deserve any respect so you know they're threatening you you see videos all the time of people you know assaulting homeless people there was there was a guy a few years ago that somebody had sprayed paint all over him outside of the shop where he begged a week later that guy the guy that had been sprayed the homeless guy killed himself um you know so it, the i never really experienced it very much but i'm very aware that it goes on and i would say that it's mainly um the people that you need to be fearful of is the fear fearful of is the general public not the other homeless people 
Okay, we're halfway through the interview, so I am going to give a shout out to our sponsors. A big thank you to SpiderVPN for all your internet security. Google SpiderVPN, they come up at the top of your search list. Thanks also to skipsandbins.com, telephone 0800 25 25 email inquiries at skipsandbins.com, website www.skipsandbins.com, easy contract free and pay as you go waste collection. Thanks also to LNG Family Funeral Directors, 01913897245, and a Garden of Healing Dispensary, CBD. Hemp and Cannabinoid Specialists, www.thegohd.com. Thanks also to Arcot Interiors for all your kitchen needs. They are based on Heaton Road in Newcastle. Uh, you can also Google them. They come up at the top of the search list. And thanks to qtechshop.co.uk, the makers of pool tables <coughs> and snooker tables in Walls and Newcastle. Thanks also to Jab Signature, jabsignature.co.uk for making all of our flyers. If you're a first-time visitor to the channel, please subscribe. Hit the Newcastle Legends logo in the bottom right-hand corner and you can subscribe for free. We still do seven shows a week uh, on this channel and a few more to boot. And also hit the thumb up under the video to like the video, click share to share to your social media and drop into the comments box to post a comment on this video. Uh, you can also listen to us on iTunes, Spotify and every good podcast provider. You can listen to us in your car, listen to us when you're out for a walk. Uh, that is the end of this public service announcement. And we're going to go into second half looking at the positives, Ricky, because you actually... Turned your life around, and that is why yeah. we got you on, because we want to talk about the positives. We want to talk about how you turned your life around. Yeah. And it's a success story, mate. I've got to be honest, because I get sent a lot of requests. I get a, I get a lot of people sending their stories to me about, you know, I did this and I did that. And I'm not on this channel to glorify crime and yeah, criminals. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, not what right. it's about. And there's nothing big and nothing clever. What I like is I like to get people on who've had a positive outcome. And my God, after the start of life you've had, mate, to turn your life around the way you have is fantastic. So, you know, we've already painted the scene. How how did you change? What was the eureka moment for you that made you think, I've got to stop this. I've got to change my life. I've got to, I've got to move on. How did you do it? How did you uh, achieve it? Uh, so there were a few things. I was... Um... So through probation, I ended up doing a Fairbridge Trust up in Newcastle. I don't know if you've heard of the Fairbridge Trust. I, I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, have. So I, I got involved with them in my late teens. Uh, so I did their sort of course, which is a lot of personal development. You go out rock climbing, you go out abseiling, lots of teamwork and stuff like that. And that sort of, that started giving me stuff to do, um, you know, uh, take me away from the situations that I was in. I was still struggling with homelessness a lot. And then... From there, I got involved in Rally International, which is a sort of, you know, that's what you move on to from Fairbridge. And Rally International were amazing for me at the time. I was a youth, I was a YDP, which is you're an inner city sort of kid and you, you go through a selection process. And the view is that you're going to go away volunteering. And at the time, I mean, I think then I would have been about 19 when I started that process. And I was probably as, as homeless as it as I got, I was constantly moving around the country. They were having to ring me up or I was getting in touch with them and saying, right, can you send the tickets to so-and-so train station? And that was to get me to all these different courses. And then they selected me and I went to, when I was 21, I went to Namibia for three months um, volunteering. And when I was out there, what happened is that I met a lot of, uh, there, there was 22 of us that were YDPs, sort of inner city from the background that I was background from the background that I was from, but most of the people participating in this um, three month expedition were gap year students and dare I say it, posh kids, rich kids. They were all privately educated. Mummy and daddy were paying for them to do something, and I made friends with a group of these posh kids that I'm still friends with now. Um, but it sort of changed my outlook on life, and you know, all of a sudden when I came back, by chance, 
a few of them that I'd become very, very good friends with were coming to Newcastle University. That's where they were doing their degrees. So I started sort of hanging around with them and their student friends. And, you know, I'd just come back from Africa. So my eyes had been opened up to what, you know, there's a big world out there. And I had a little bit more self-worth because all of a sudden, you know, I was, my, my circle of friends were just nicer people. And that's not criticizing the people that you know i've been kicking about with but you know all of a sudden i wasn't hanging around the streets with all the homeless people all the time i was sometimes you know um it wasn't a clean break but you know there was a lot of times that i was with all these students etc and then what happened is i got arrested one last time um for assaulting a bus driver just being an idiot drunk got into an argument over absolutely nothing punched the bus driver somebody stood up to try and help the bus driver i punched him as well he was a civil servant uh, the bus driver crashed the bus we were stationary but the handbrake came off he crashed the bus into the bus Stop. obviously it was carnage the police caught up with me arrested me it was made very clear to me in court i nearly went to prison and it was made very clear to me in court that this was the last chance and the only reason i didn't go to prison is because all of those student friends of mine came to court with me and gave me a character reference but i always remember and this was probably the first time this has happened my friends were really really disappointed in me um you know they, they my friends that i had made were all sort of asking me what are you playing at like what are you doing with your life and it sort of dawned on me that I had to start, you know, trying to sort things out. So slowly but surely, really, I started washing dishes, uh, you know, bouncing from job to job. Uh, unfortunately, my mum died when I was 25. She took her own life. But that was that was another thing where I was like, you know, I'm heading the same path if I don't sort myself out. And I bounced from rubbish job to rubbish job, really. Call centres, you know, I, I lied my way into all of them. I used to top tip. I used to um, invent CVs and I used to look for companies that had gone bust and put those on my CV saying that I'd worked for them, knowing that if anybody did due diligence, they wouldn't be able to prove that I didn't work at those companies because they didn't exist anymore. Um, so there's a top tip for any job seekers. Out there. Brilliant. <laughs> right. So I used to do that. Uh, you know, and I was a bit of a blagger. My mates used to be my reference and, you know, we were all confident on the phone. So if, if I needed a reference, they would bring my mate. He would pretend that he worked at one of these companies that had gone bust. Um, so that sort of got me ticking along. And then I was still I, I wasn't homeless, but I was never far away from homelessness. And, you know, my jobs were never long term. They were all short term contracts. So it was still pretty it was a pretty tough sort of living but when I was 31 I got really fed up with a job interview for the Royal Mail I, I won't spin the whole story but something happened at a job interview that really really annoyed me and I just had enough and I rung it was something that I'd always thought about I rung my missus and just said look I'm going to the military careers I'm going to the the, the careers office and she was a bit low dubious and I walked in to the uh, military careers and I, I sat with all of them and I sat with the Royal Navy and sort of explained what the crap was and just said, look, I've made a mess of my life. I've got 42 convictions, but I haven't been in trouble for nearly a decade. Can I join? And the young lad behind the counter, who I now know was just an AB, the same, like, you know, he was just a young bod. This would have been completely too, way above his pay scale. He went upstairs and got a guy called Chief Caesar, who um, is a Geordie guy. And this big six foot four Chief Caesar came down and we had a chat and he, he explained that he was from a family where his brothers hadn't joined the military and they'd sort of gone down the um, the route of people that you like to interview sometimes, Steve. Do you know what I mean? And he, he was saying if it wasn't through the Royal Navy, I remember he was saying if it wasn't through the Na Royal Navy, I would have got in trouble too. And I was like, all oh, right. And I remember him saying, oh, no, no, I mean, like, gangster trouble. And I remember looking at the size of them and thinking, 
yeah, you're right, like, 100%, you wouldn't have just been getting arrested for petty stuff, you know what I mean? But I think it was real lucky that I got him because he backed me to the hill. You know, he saw all my convictions. I went and got the printer off. We went over them. He was of the same mindset. He was like, they're all petty. I get it. You've made a mess of your life. I'm going to I'm gonna ask for permission for you to join. Um, he maybe hid a couple of things and, yeah, got permission for me to join. And it was one of them. I just said, look, just sign me up for whatever. Just get me in as quickly as possible. Because I remember saying to him, if I don't get in, if I don't do something with my life now, this is the way my life's going to be forever. And then they let me into the Royal Navy. And I said that I was going to do um, four years to get something on my CV. And I'm leaving on April the 3rd after four, 13 years. And you're leaving, um, but you missed a little bit out there. And you probably don't blow your own trumpet, so I'll blow it for you. You oh, won right, three okay. military awards for various things. Yeah. Um, yeah one of them so which included setting up a homeless charity in Somerset when you were based there. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, yeah, the the, the the Navy have given me, what the military's done is it put me on an even platform as everybody else, and it gave me that stability and stuff, do you know what I mean, which was lacking in life. Um, and it gave me a platform to just do various things and find out things about myself that, you know, I hadn't had the chance to before. And it turned out I was I'm quite good at sort of organising things, you know, and getting people to do stuff <laughs> it's, it's hard to explain but it started off with you know i started organizing families days for the the base and you know people were like ricky gleason sorting all of that out and i you know i was sorting out all these different things at once and then you know uh, one of my friends he's passed away now sadly but he was terminally on i did a lot of sorting out for him and i won an award for that um like an endeavor award off the captain and then um and then later down the line i was based in yeovil uh, RNS Yeovil, which is an airbase in Somerset, and I, it wasn't a deployable role. It meant that I was sort of working on this airbase for a couple of years, and I, you know, got talking to some like-minded people, and we set up a homeless charity um, that ended up. It started off uh, two pots and some food in it, dishing it out, which apparently was against all of the um, sort of health and safety regulations, which I found out when they came along to speak to me. But again, they helped me. Everybody sort of bought into what I was doing and they all helped me. And I ended up accidentally setting up a fully registered homeless charity called Haven, um, Homeless and Vulnerable Outreach Network. And that's still going. I, I Once it was fully registered, it became clear that my cowboy method in getting it off the ground was perfect. But if I carried on, it was it was going to get shut down. So I managed to find the right people to hand it over to. And I handed it over to a lady called Rachel Lee, who's an ex-Lieutenant Commander in the Royal Navy. And it's hers now. It's got nothing to do with me. Uh, but I picked up an award for that, um, which was nice. I picked up a Special Endeavour Award for that. And then just before I'm leaving now, because of the podcast that I do where I've been talking and trying to raise awareness about issues like homelessness, um, addiction so things that have sort of you know i've had to deal with throughout the years but it's branching off we're sort of you know we're veering in all sorts of routes now um and it doesn't really get watched that much but it seems to be helping the people that do watch it and it's helping the people that are taking part and uh, yeah my my unit caught wind of what i was doing and they're very supportive and i picked up my third award which is named after the young lad who my friend that died so that was a real nice way to end my career kind of thing they didn't promote me though steve i just want to throw that in there yeah they didn't promote me <laughs> listen that's an amazing achievement though from where you were from homeless to you know to, to that position um yeah. just 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 out of interest i mean going into 
the armed forces um, mm. as you did? I mean, did you struggle with the discipline? Did you, you know, I mean, you know, you didn't like school like me and discipline, etc. You re rebelled against it a little bit. But did you find that a bit easier? Had you matured by then? I, I've struggled here and there. But what I will say is that the reason why I struggled in school and I didn't struggle in the military and whether this is right or wrong in the military, there's a reason for the discipline. Um, you're in a discipline services, you know, the crack, you know what you're signing up to the person in front of you that is giving you orders has earned the right to give you orders. That's their rank. That's their job. I just didn't feel like that to, to me in school. It didn't feel like the teachers had any right to be telling me what to do. That might be completely wrong. Do you know what I mean? Because, I mean, effectively, it is wrong. They're teachers. You're supposed to do what you're told. But I, the, that was a lot of the conflict in school for me. I just thought, who are you people? Like, who do you think you're talking to kind of thing? Um, which, yeah, I don't know the psychology of it all, but, you know, I was a damaged young man by the time I got to school in um, yeah. South Shields, whereas, like you said, I was I was a 31-year-old that knew I had to toe the line um, when I joined the forces. But... I haven't been promoted. <laughs> well, you haven't been promoted. That, that's what we should entitle this video. I haven't been promoted. Um, yeah, but, anyway, I mean, there's probably a reason I haven't been promoted. It's because I, I struggle a little bit with some of the discipline here and there. But <laughs> look, no, I, I just want—I just want to say, like the Navy's been personally for me. The Navy's been amazing. It's changed my life. I'm about to move back to uh, the northeast. Um, I've now got two little kids. My life moving back is completely different to what it was when I moved away. My kids' lives are going to be completely different to mine. Um, you know, just, yeah, the, 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 the platform it gave me to sort of rebuild my life um, has been amazing. And, it, yeah, it's changed everything. And I'd recommend it to any anybody, you know, that sort of lacking in direction. I would say this, you know, if you even if you have got a criminal record, you can go along now and still speak to them and, you know, they'll, they'll sort of look at it. You know, they look at every case differently. But when when I see, you know, young young people just sort of drifting around, not knowing what to do in life, uh, I just think, well, just go and sign up for a bit. Even if you just do your minimum of four years and work out what it is that you want to do while you're off doing bits and bobs for the armed forces, do that. Some people have got a problem with the armed forces. I, you know, I'm pro armed forces, so deal with it. It, it works for some. It doesn't work for others. I mean, I, mm. I went through a bit of a, a transition in my life. I was a bit of an idiot. I, I was getting, I was getting involved in, you know, Newcastle United and and you know, knocking around with the wrong crowd like you did. And I, mm. I ended up having an altercation with my dad. Something I'm never, I'm not particularly proud of, you know. But I mean, we, you know, we got over it. But I, I felt I needed discipline. And when I got to 21, and I, I enrolled for the Territorial Army, which I know, you know, the the full time forces often used to frown upon the tears, you know, part-time soldiers, etc. But I, I went into that and I tried to do that for my own purposes to try and discipline myself, to try and get myself back on track. Um, and it wasn't for me. I, I've got to be honest. I couldn't cope with the yeah. discipline. I, I was easily targeted. I was easily targeted by the sergeant majors who, who you know, made it a point of you know. Now I've watched so many programs and spoken to so many people in the in the forces. Um, it was deliberate. I can see what they were trying to do. But I rebelled against it and I didn't like it. And I, I, I didn't didn't hang around long. But I, I give it a go, and it, it just wasn't for me. It takes a special person with special mentality to be able yeah. to do that and take that discipline. You know. Do you know what? Before, before the, one of the big reasons that I ended up going into the careers officer is that in my late twenties I got fit through boxing training, which um, gave God, me another similarity we've got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I ended up going to through a drugs charity. They had this session um, fit club in Newcastle, uh, yeah. where he would do you know a boxing circuit with us, and I started going to that once a week to start with. And I remember the first time I, I went being absolutely horrified at how unfit I was and then just <laughs> just challenging myself to be able to keep going back until I could get all the way around the circuit without stopping 
Um, mm. So I started sort of setting myself challenges, you know, that self-discipline of doing that. And then once I could get all the way without stopping, something happened inside of me. The addictive personality took over. By the time I joined the forces at 31, I, I was training five, six days a week. Um, I was sparring loads. I, I'd, I'd never boxed competitively because I couldn't be bothered to make weight and things like that. Uh, it's a big regret of mine that I wish that I'd just gone and sort of had a few bouts. Uh, but I joined the Navy through boxing training. Uh, I think there was 40, I think there was about 46 of us during basic training. I was the oldest there by a long way. I was in the top 10 fitness. You know, I was as fit as a fiddle and I, I, I got a lot. I got a lot and I am getting back into it slowly, but surely I'm very big on healthy body, healthy mind. Yeah, me too, mate. Me too. I think it, as you get older, you realise that, you know, you only get one crack of life, but you only get yeah. one body as well. And, and yeah, that's it. Yeah. I do want to ask you about the BBC documentary, uh, because when oh, you sent me yeah. a few notes about your, your life story, it, it, what was it called? And is there any way we can watch that? Because you I would be interested in seeing it. It was about it was an called, aircraft carrier. Yeah, it's called Britain's Biggest Warship. And it was the first season uh, by Chris Terrell. And it was just, you know, it was as they were being built and taken out to sea for the first time. Um, Chris was on there. He does all, he did the 57-year-old commander or something he's the old guy that's got a green berry he does all the forces stuff um but yeah he was just sort of he was a member of crew he was in uniform and everything filming a documentary and it started off that they saw me in the gash compartment and everybody was reaching because we we have to empty the ship of all the rubbish sometimes and everybody was reaching and i was absolutely fine because i used to be a bin man in gateshead <laughs> at one point so it just didn't bother me and then he got talking to me and then he found out about my past and then that was it they had me sat on a bed talking about you know, my past and stuff. But you know what? The episode I was in is really hard to find online. And I think I know why, but I'll tell you off camera. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. That's, that's great. All right. The last 10 minutes, we're going to dedicate to what you're doing now. And you've already mentioned you're coming back to Newcastle, which is yeah. great. In the words of Busker, you're coming home, Newcastle. I am. Um, home. Yeah, yeah, I am. And and I'll, I'll put all the links in the in the chat below and, and in the description box. But yeah. um, the charity that you're going to be involved with is sportstrader.com. So the website is www.sportstrader.com. Sportstrader. Sportstrader.com. And you'll see that below. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Tell us who's behind it and tell us why you've been chosen to be involved. Yeah. So when I was doing these podcasts, we got talking to a guy called Lance Haggith, who'd helped my mate. The first the first podcast that we did was with a friend of mine called Earl Charlton, who works down at Northeast Homeless down at the Fish Key. He he's the lad that I was talking about. He spent 18 years. He was injecting heroin into his groin. He was, by all accounts, dead and buried. Lance Haggith is a really successful businessman from the Watford area. Um, he did Lance of London, which in the 80s was sort of clothing all the pop stars with, you know, their old boy George and all the leather that you see them wearing. That was him. He's done loads. If you if you Wikipedia him, he's done absolutely loads. And then uh, he was also a basketball player and a basketball coach. And he says that after making lots of money, he sort of looked at his own kids and saw all the sporting opportunities that he could afford to send them off. And didn't think it was fair that other people couldn't get those sports sporting opportunities. He's friends with um he's friends with AJ, he's personal friends with AJ actually. So we talked about that. And then I sort of set up another podcast with him. We did one in the early days, and then I set up another one with him and got talking to him about sports trader and he explained it properly. Um it's it's a it's a charity shop by all accounts that sells donated sports equipment be it secondhand or donated from clubs, be it, you know, from school collections or people just dropping it off. But it's sports equipment that tends to sell for a five pound each and they're on the high street. And then all of the proceeds that get made from that then get used 
to create sporting opportunities in the local area. Um, so I got talking to him and was saying, like, you know, how many shops have you got? I think you've got 11 shops, 10, 11 shops around the country. He'd made it up to Hull. Um, and then I said, you know, are you planning to go to Newcastle? And he said he'd love to go to Newcastle. It's just about finding the right people. Um, obviously, with my background and sort of some of the stuff that I did, I asked him whether my friend uh, Ian Sutcliffe, who is a businessman from the northeast of England, he he's another adopted Geordie, loves Newcastle United. He's from Bolton, lives in Wickham. Um, so, right. yeah, so so me and him then sort of pitch launched. Basically, we set up a Zoom call and pitched him and just said, look, his business experience, my backgrounds and sort of the knowledge of the people that you're trying to help. Can we take it to Newcastle for you? Lance is fully behind us. He said, yep, yeah, you crack on. That's it. You're sort of not free reign, but, you know, that's what we're running with. Um, so from there, that that is that's the plan. We are, you know, now looking for premises in Newcastle to open a sports trader, spelled AID. Um, we're going to open a shop in Newcastle. Hopefully we'd like it to be, you know, in the city centre somewhere, preferably in, in Eldon Square. I'll just throw that out there. Um, you know, so, yeah, yeah, we're going to set up one of these shops and start taking collections. We've already had a few free collections from some various sports clubs. Uh, we're always trying to get more in. I'd like to sort of get some boxing clubs involved. You know, I, I'm, where I'm moving, I won't say where I'm moving because I don't want people coming to my house, but I'm moving near Forest Hall. I know Lewis Ritz and boxes from Forest Hall, so I want to go along there and stuff. Uh, yeah, get as much sports equipment in as we possibly can. Also, another thing that they do is that the people that they hire, and it's made up of volunteers and staff members. Lance is big on giving um, ex-offenders uh, a chance in life, do you know what I mean? And saying, right, come and earn some honest money and, you know, take some time out uh so yeah uh, that's that's the essence of it really it's a charity shop we're going to use the proceeds to set up sports clubs um and assist other sports clubs and you know get some coaching opportunities for kids that otherwise wouldn't usually get those opportunities uh and you know little things we've got world of sport tv have sort of caught wind of us and they've become our uh sort of official partner sponsor if you like they're going to start buying equipment from the shop to then raffle off to their subscribers and donate the money back to us kind of thing, which is sort of keep the ball rolling. Um, so yeah, anybody that's watching, if you're part of sports clubs that can donate equipment to us that we can then sell on to anyone, anyone can come in and buy it. Do you know what I mean? It's not for people that can't afford it. You know, anybody that's buying is helping us out. And then the proceeds that we take from the equipment we sell, we will then put back into the community. And like I said, it's a national charity. You can go online. Lance has got them all over the country. Um, it's, it's a charity that I really like the sound of because of the fact that I, I'm, I'm a sports fan. Yeah, I mean, there's the website there underneath my uh, picture there, and you can yeah. see it. So just get yourself onto that website. That gives you all the ind indication you need. We're on um we're on Twitter as Sports Trader Newcastle. Uh, uh, I think I'm on as Tune Trader. I think it is. Um, and our podcast is on as Outside In Pods on Twitter. Uh, if I just if you don't mind, I just throw these out there. If you go onto YouTube and uh, look for From the Outside In podcasts that come up, Neon Neon Writing, that's the podcast channel. And we have a Facebook group, Sports Trade in Newcastle. Um, and if you join that, that's where we sort of post asking for people to help us along. So we're trying, uh, you know, I'm, it's one of them, you, you know, the crack. I'm trying to find ins to every sort of nook and cranny. You know, my mate that was in the Navy used to play for Blythe Spartans. He was on Football Manager, that's his claim to fame. Um, but, he, you know, I've asked him to try and get me in. I know, Steve, you mentioned that you know a certain amount of Stavely, so maybe you know, talk about getting Newcastle United. We'd love to get Newcastle United involved. I'd like to get the women's team involved as well, do you know what I mean? Because we're really about yeah. 
promoting all sports, um, women's boxing, women's football, all of it. So, yeah, that, that's what I'm bringing back up as soon as I get out the Royal Navy in one piece, which isn't as easy as it sounds. Um, and, yeah, that, that's, that's my plans in life at the moment. I mean, look, just going, just going back to you know your, your your previous life, just before we finish, and and you know, one of the one of the lines that that was in your message to me when we when we we're talking about doing this was that your your focus in life now is to make sure that when you die, your kids are going to be proud of what you've done with your life. Yeah. Um, and I I guarantee that there will be because you know what you've done is it it's an, a remarkable turnaround. But looking back to what happened to you, you know, the drug abuse, the the, the petty crime, you know, the um, you know, the, the homelessness. Um, if there's somebody watching these podcasts, and I know because I see people on the streets when I'm walking around Newcastle who come up to me who are down on their luck, um, who are homeless, some of them, um, who aren't having the best of times, who say to me, I've seen your podcast or whatever, and you know, I, I speak to these people and I know some of them will be watching. What advice could you give? to somebody like that watching now um, about how, you know, they can get out of that situation they're in. What is the first step you would tell them, to, you know, or give them advice to do? So never accept it. Never accept that that's your lot in life. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, is that, I'll never give up hope. Just don't accept it. Don't think that this is the way that your life's going to be forever. And that's to everybody. Do you know what I mean? When you're a kid, when you're young, you think that the way life is, is how it's going to be forever. It isn't. So, you, you know, don't accept your lot. Get fit. That's a big one. You know, it, it, it's impossible to be it's impossible to be homeless and sober, in my opinion. So I never judge anybody for the fact that they might be using or they might be drinking too much when they're homeless. But try and get to a gym a few times. We can just start the ball rolling and exercise as much for your mental health as anything. And, you know, that that will eventually start helping you out and it might sound weird you've got to learn to like your own company you know and sort of look after yourself first and foremost not at the detriment of other people but when you're down in the bottom you've got to learn to like your own company don't accept that that's your lot and start trying to get fit i guarantee if you did those three things that you'll get somewhere great advice a great podcast uh thoroughly enjoyed that mate thank you for for coming to me and asking um you know to, to be part of the show good no luck with what you're doing hopefully you'll be able to help you in due course mate certainly uh i'd never be afraid to drop us an inbox and ask us if i can help and uh just thanks for being a fantastic guest uh, guest ricky gleason thank you very much cheers thank you for having me mate